I know we just prayed, but will you just pray with me right now to sense God wanting to speak to us? God, God of all seasons that holds it all together. God, we ask you, Lord, as we are going to be talking about wanting to see, I sense you, God, asking us to hear. So God, would you help us to hear what you are saying? To God, for you to help us to hear your voice through your word, through the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., through our neighbors. God, I pray that we would have ears to hear what you may be speaking. Position us, O oh God, to hear, and let us not be afraid as we hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, New Community Covenant Church, um, we are currently in our second week of our We Want to See sermon series. A series that is helping us to slow down and shift our posture so that we can see ourselves and to see our situation in the neighbors the way God sees them. Each week this month, we will meditate on the powerful story of Jesus healing a blind man in Luke 18. And like Emily mentioned last week in her video, each preacher this month, will, each week, will hold a prism to this passage and turn it ever so slightly and to see it through a different lens. Last week, our, care, our brother and care minister, Tim White, pointed us to the reality that Jesus is our king and challenged us to grapple that, with that and what it means for our lives. And as we examine the same passage today, I'd like us to turn the prison ever so slightly and read this passage through the lens of examining the crowd. Why is it important for us to examine the crowd? Well, I think it's easy for us to read this passage and identify ourselves as the man that was blind because for you and I, it's not too hard, especially this season, to acknowledge that we've got needs and we have areas of healing, right? I mean, just between COVID alone and all the things related to that, and then you have family and relationships, work and school, our mental health, there's a lot that's going on in this congregation, and the weight we are carrying is heavy, and so it's easy to identify with the man that was blind and that had needs. But identifying with the crowd? Theologian Erna Kim Hackett coined this phrase, princess theology, as a way of describing and critiquing the particular expression of white or Western American theology. She calls it princess theology because she says that when you watch a Disney movie, you're supposed to identify with a protagonist, or in the past it's been the princess. And so the critique is that when Americans look at scripture, we too tend to do the same thing. We tend to identify with the protagonist. One of my favorite movies, Disney movies, is Moana. I feel like I'm Moana. I am Moana of Montanui. You will board my boat, sail across the ocean, and restore the heart of Tafiti, right? <laughs> I feel like I'm Moana. But I'm also Taka, the scary lava monster. Or how about this one? Encanto, yes, Encanto fans out there. <laughs> I am Mirabelle, waiting on a miracle. 
But I'm also Abuela, who is deeply afraid of change. So today, as we read this passage, I want you, I want to invite you to be courageous with me. To examine the crowd, not as the crowd we roll our eyes at, but the crowd that is us. And I want to ask us to try and locate ourselves in this story as a crew, in the, in the story as a crowd, so that we might access the beautiful truth that is available to us if we're courageous enough, courageous enough to see ourselves in that way. Now, as I say all this, I want to acknowledge that some of you listening today, you more often than not feel like the man that was blind. You regularly feel dismissed, shut down, and passed up for opportunities. And so it might be particularly hard for you to identify with the crowd. If you are someone that feels consistently marginalized, my prayer is that you will be able to join me today and hear the particular word that God has for you. And that as God ministers to you, my prayer is that you too will be able to relate to this sermon because we are all nuanced people. Sometimes based on our social context, we are the man that was blind. Sometimes we are the crowd. And sometimes we're really both at the same time. But regardless of where you are in your current story, may you hear the particular truth that God has for you. And may we all receive the word that God wants to um, share with our collective body. So if you're able, will you stand with me in the reading of this text? Luke 18, 35 to 42. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. This is the word of the Lord. I love how last week, Tim, you pointed out the volume of this man's voice. It was loud. And Tim, with his deep, booming voice, was able to demonstrate that so well. And so I need us to remember that as we visit this story today. I need us to remember that this man's voice was noticeably loud. And something that stood out to me as I was reflecting on this text this past week, trying to imagine the scene with all five of my senses, was that Jesus' first encounter with this man was hearing him. Jesus' first experience with him wasn't that he was blind, but that he was loud. We can argue that all-knowing Jesus knew that that this man was blind, but at the very start of the story, and stay with me, human Jesus, the Jesus that experienced the world with all five of his senses, had only experienced this man as being loud. 
Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now the crowd's response to this man raising his voice was to rebuke him. Another version says that they yell at him to be quiet. Have you ever yelled at someone, or at least everything inside of you, were practically yelling at them? Have you ever been in a situation where you have felt so distressed that you felt compelled to yell? You know, I consider myself a pretty mild-mannered person, and in the past, if you were to ask me about my temperament, I probably would have said that I was the kind of person that doesn't really yell. In fact, as a child, I got constant feedback from adults that I needed to speak up because they couldn't hear me. And so while this is all true, and parts of this is still true, now that I've been a high school teacher and a parent, I know how to yell. (laughs) And I'm not proud about it. And honestly, I have to apologize way more at this age than I wish and I thought I would. But let me tell you this. I know how to yell because some things really bother me. The crowd yelled at the man that was blind. And so my question is this. What was really bothering them? Why were they feeling threatened? What was so threatening about this man's loud shouting? I wonder if the crowd felt threatened by a challenge to the status quo. See, status quo was the man that was blind sitting on the roadside. Status quo was the crowd telling the man that was blind, hey, Jesus is passing by and then swiftly passing by as well. Status quo was the blind man staying on the roadside. You know, it says that the man was a blind man was a beggar. So I wouldn't be surprised if the crowd had gotten gotten used to the sound of this man's voice. I imagine it was normal for the community to hear the man's voice begging in the background just like it's normal for us to see panhandlers on the highway exits. It's normal for us to see tents under bridges. It's normal for us to see streetwise vendors outside of Walgreens. Perhaps the beggar that was blind had blended in so much into the fabric of his community that he had become a prop in the landscape of his society. And I mean, just notice the way this individual is identified in the story. He was the blind man. Dr. King had something to say about this kind of normal. In his letter from a Birmingham jail, he had bemoaned white America's allegiance to the status quo. He bemoaned keeping things as they were and bequeathed the role of what he called the white moderate in protecting the status quo of racism in the United States. He says this, he says, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor of the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. 
who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. See, the crowd in this story owned the rights of the definition of what order was. They held the rights to defining what peace was and what was convenient and what was not. They were the keepers of those definitions. And in their social power and privilege, they openly silenced the man that was blind because according to their priorities, his behavior was disorderly, unpeaceful, and inconvenient. You know, in today's time, MLK is revered and honored. But we remember that Dr. King was very unpopular in his day. Dominique Gilliard, a racial justice leader and leader in our confident denomination, shares this in his recent Instagram post. He says this, King was a prophetic leader who uncompromisingly confronted injustice. This protest he led in Albany, Georgia, is a prime example where over 500 protesters were arrested following his leadership and philosophy of militant nonviolence. Can you imagine how Dr. King would be slandered, rebuked, and dismissed as someone opposing the will of God by so much of the church if he were to lead such a protest today? Let's talk about today in our modern context. In 2017, less than five years ago, thousands of people marched on Magnificent Mile on Black Friday to protest the fatal shooting and the city's handling of the shooting of a black teenager by the name of Laquan McDonald by a white police officer. If you were living in Chicago, then you might remember this, but thousands of people protested in Chicago's most prestigious shopping street on one of the busiest U.S. retail days, And according to local news and personal anecdotes that I heard, the protest was nonviolent, but it was truly disruptive. In fact, the Chicago Tribune reported that the protest cost stores 25 to 50% of their sales that day. That's really significant. If I had walked around and surveyed the people, the crowd that day, right, namely the people, the local and out-of-town shoppers and store workers, I wonder how they would have processed that event. I wonder what they would have said and if they would have been like the crowd in our text, a bit too preoccupied and maintaining a certain kind of order, a certain kind of peace, and consequently missing the significance of that moment the value of that protest. One of the reasons why we as humans are often blinded to see what Jesus sees is that we value different things. We maintain a different value system than Jesus does. And in the text, it says that in response to the loud cry of the man that was blind, Jesus stopped. Jesus heard the noise and maybe the commotion. Instead of forcefully trying to go by, he stopped. Why did Jesus stop? What were the values motivating Jesus to stop? Or perhaps more poignantly, what were the values, what values did Jesus have that you and I often lack? Let me say that again. What values did Jesus have 
that you and I often lack? I've been sitting with that question all week. And I want to, I want to ask you to sit with that question as well. And as a way of sitting with that question, I'm actually going to tell you two stories. When I was in college, I was part of a church community that had a robust discipleship community. And honestly, I had some mixed experiences at this church, like we most of us do when we commit to uh, a local body of humans. <laughs> but overall, I'm deeply grateful for the ways that ch- that church formed me to love God with my whole heart. Now, as I was meditating on this text and the Jesus and the man that was blind, a distinct memory from this church came up. Now, I think a valuable detail to share about this story is that this church was like Pentecostal, but not Pentecostal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like really prayerful, spirit-led, spiritually expressive, but technically not Pentecostal. Anyways, this church hosted all-night prayer gatherings. And you heard that right, all-night <laughs> prayer gatherings. And during one particular gathering, I remember sitting in the main session, listening to the preacher exhorting and teaching us about something that was spiritually significant. In the middle of his preaching, someone in the audience started to talk relatively loudly. They weren't shouting per se, but just like talking in a normal voice in a, in a moment like this where it's really quiet. And so, so I, I remember, I can't remember what this person was saying. I just remember feeling really confused and distracted. And a couple seconds in, I think we all started doing that like, I don't know what's happening. This is awkward, staring at the preacher. What are you going to do about it, right? And after a good number of seconds, the preacher abruptly stopped his preaching, looked directly at the woman that was being disruptive, and rebuked her. He rebuked her for how distracting she was. He even named evil spirits that were behind this disruption and asked other leaders in the room to take care of the situation. Now, as a young college student that was bent toward being submissive toward her spiritual authorities, my response at the time was to buckle down to silent prayer and to pray against the spiritual warfare that was just publicly named. And at the time, I interpreted the tension I was feeling inside as a spiritual attack, as this was a very serious prayer gathering. Now, fast forward a couple years, or maybe it's been a little bit more, it's been a while since I'm in college, I actually look back at that situation and view it quite differently. I view it differently because after that incident, I learned that this woman suffers from mental illness. And her mental illness impacted her social skills, which made her a social misfit. And when I look back at the prayer gathering now, I see it through a different lens. Because since my college years, I have gained and developed new kingdom values that I lacked in college. Now, I feel like I'd be remiss if I ended my story reflection here. And that your main takeaway is, ooh, that, piece, that, that preacher, he was messed up. Because the reality is that many of us were raised in the same evangelical culture that rebukes distractions as spiritual battle, that views distractions as threats to spiritual flourishing and idolizes a certain kind of spiritual success. For many of us growing up and still today, spiritual success looks like a preacher 
preaching a powerful word and lots of people turning to God as a response to it. And so if that is the outline of success, then it makes sense to me that you're going to have a pretty strong reaction to a woman talking while you're trying to preach because that ain't going to be a successful sermon for you. When I read Luke 18 and read about how Jesus approaches the loud man that was blind, I can't help but wonder how would Jesus have handled the woman at that prayer ground prayer gathering that was loud, disruptive, and mentally ill. I told you that I want to tell you two stories as we sit with this question. What values did Jesus have that you and I often lack? So here's my second story. A number of years ago, I worked for a nonprofit called Mission Year. And that placed a high value for loving God and neighbor. And dear, one particular year, I was working less hours doing, due to role shift. But even so, I was invited to participate in the annual staff gathering where our staff from all across the country was coming together. We were a national staff, so it was rare to be all together. And so this meeting was important. Well, on one of the days we were scheduled to meet, I showed up at our office and noticed that the schedule was running behind And I know this because I had arrived slightly late, but I had to go all the way back home because I realized I had forgotten my breast pump. And if I was nursing at the time, and if you've ever nursed before, you know you can't go a full day without your breast pump. But that unexpected drive home and back, a one-hour round trip, I came back to the office only to find out that the meeting had still not commenced. Honestly, I was feeling a mix of emotions about the situation. I was confused about why the meeting was so delayed. I was impatient. Time was and still is a variable, very valuable resource to me. And as a nursing mother, it was especially important because my body was on a timetable. My chest was starting to feel swollen with milk and with impatience. And so when the meeting finally got started, the executive director explained what had happened. A neighbor on the street was expressing some sort of crisis. And he asked, and that person had asked two of our staff members for support. And so the time it took to sort out the help and support took a significant amount of time. And so our meeting was consequently running behind. My lead, that leader was a friend, so I could tell that he had a slightly disheveled look on his face, and understandably so, because he had set the agenda, and now he had to be completely reworked. But what stood out to me that day was what he said at the beginning of our meeting. He said, you know, sometimes we approach our meetings and plans expecting them to go a certain way. We have important things to discuss and needs to address, and we get all caught up on all those plans so that we can do ministry. And so the interruptions we experience can feel like an interruption to ministry. But what those two people just did today, that interruption was ministry. That moment has forever left an impression on me informed what I consider ministry. 
my staff leader offered a nuanced definition of success and of ministry. And that definition stretched me and my team to live outside of our set plans and expectations so that we might truly be available to the persons right in front of us. Father, Father Gregory Boyle, a Jesuit priest most known for his work with Homeboy Industries, a prominent gay intervention rehabilitation and reentry program, says this salivating for success keeps you from being faithful keeps you from truly seeing whoever's sitting in front of you. In his book, Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion, a book I highly recommend, Father Gregory says this, you stand with the least likely to succeed until success is succeeded by something more valuable, kinship. You stand with the belligerent, the surly, and the badly behaved until bad behavior is recognized for the language it is, the vocabulary of the deeply wounded and of those whose burdens are more than they can bear. What values did Jesus have that you and I often lack? On the day Jesus was, on that day in the text, Jesus was headed to Jerusalem. He was passing through Jericho when he encountered the man that was loud and blind. And through that unforgettable counter, the crowd got a glimpse of the kingdom of God. They got a glimpse of the kingdom not just because a man experiencing blindness was healed. They got a glimpse of the kingdom not just because someone who had great need, well, it was just his blindness, right? His sight was restored. But also, they got a glimpse of the kingdom because a man that was relegated and kept in the margins was brought to the center and he was heard and he was healed. And that event brought clarity to the kingdom order. That event brought perspective to kingdom peace. And that event brought glory to the Father. Jesus was a rabbi and a teacher that often gifted his students with stories and questions. And that was a common way he would communicate life-giving truth. And so today... Instead of leaving you with a set of suggestions or applications, I actually want to gift you with a set of questions. Because if you and I are serious about, deeply, deeply serious about following Jesus, if you and I are serious about radically advancing the cause of Jesus, of alerting the world of a new kingdom order, we can't just keep digesting more and more information. We must partake in prayer and examination of ourselves with hard questions. So my first question for you is this. What are you afraid of? In the presence of chaos or disorder, of a civil unrest, of even congregational unrest, when disorder is present and peace feels disrupted, what is my response? Am I quick to silence and dismiss and to maintain a false peace? And if I am, 
what is showing up in me? What am I afraid of? What sorrows and fears might God need to heal me of? What deep hurts might God want to heal the persons in front of me of? Question number two is, what values did Jesus have that you might be lacking? See, the vast majority of people don't oppose the value of justice. Justice is not hard to value. But the value for justice in our world is often lacking because there are other values that come with it. Because for you and I to embrace justice, that might simultaneously mean valuing sacrifice and emptying of ourselves. It might mean, to some extent, valuing interruption, disruption, and long-suffering. It means valuing transformative conflict. Question three, what values did Jesus have that Newcom Logan Square might be lacking? As I come to that final question, I want to share one final story that comes from the Newcom archives. Because while today's message requires us to examine ourselves as individuals, I am deeply convinced that God has this church on a journey. And there is a word for us today as a collective body, as New Community Covenant Church, Logan Square. This photo is a picture of my small group from my very first year at Newcom in 2011 as a 26-year-old young adult. You'll see some familiar faces, and I suppose since it's from 2011, it kind of fits that 10-year challenge that's been trending in Facebook, yes? (laughs) But as you look at the faces in this picture, I actually want want to direct your attention to the man standing in the center. He's kind of hiding in the back, but still in the center of the picture. This beautiful man with the white hair, his name was Kevin Brady. Kevin Brady was one of those guys that was somehow in like every small group. It's like someone I know here. <laughs> but my interpretation of why that was is because he had just so much love to go around. And whether he knew or not, he believed, I believe, that God positioned him as a prophet at Newcom. Kevin was an active volunteer at Open Arms which at the time was called the Warming Center, and he was dearly loved and respected in that community. Years before I had met him, he had been one of the guys at the Warming Center, one of the guests himself, and I think that after being transformed by love and hospitality, he made it his life goal to pass it forward. My husband, Kenny, always tells people that Kevin was the single most important reason he joined Newcom, because Kevin was like someone he had never met. The rest of us in that group always kind of look around at each other and roll our eyes because it doesn't make us feel very special. But it's true. Kevin was a man like no other. Kevin was unhoused, so that meant that every night he was at group, one of us would give him a ride to his temporary housing shelter in Pilsen. Whenever he shared at group meetings, it was usually long-winded and sometimes off-topic. And many times, I wasn't even really sure I always knew what he was talking about. 
Kevin was a really endearing personality. He was also a man with a past and flaws just like you and me. Though he was kind and sweet and he was also to some extent disorderly, unpeaceful, and inconvenient, he was always challenging our group either with his words or his life to love others more radically. And so when the news came on November 11, 2011, that he had died, our Newcom Church community was, was heartbroken. I cannot fully articulate all that Kevin had helped, has helped me learn to value. Because I can tell you, but I can tell you this, that for years this man's legacy in a life in our church community was palpable. I don't think we often explicitly said this, but for many of us, Kevin's leadership and love in our lives compelled us to continue Kevin's legacy of loving our unhoused neighbors. As a small group and church community, we kept cooking and participating in monthly meals. When we found out that the city was planning to intentionally build structures to dislocate our unhoused neighbors living under the Velmont Viaduct right by Aldi, we organized together and met with the aldermen to express our concerns as a church. We advocated for affordable housing and Lathrop homes. Some of us even volunteered at different times in the drop-in center. We kept valuing the sorts of things Kevin valued, and I believe Jesus values. Because Kevin was our brother, and we wanted the people that he shared kinship with to be our kin as well. I won't speak for everyone that knew Kevin, but Kevin taught me how to value what he valued. And as my value system began to be shift, began to shape and be shifted, I gained access to an understanding of the kingdom of God that was expansive. The kind of kingdom that Kevin had kept preaching to us about. New community, Logan Square. What values did Jesus have that we might be lacking? What values did Jesus have that we may have lost sight of? You know what's helping me these days to approach these challenging questions with honesty, rigor, and vulnerability? prayer. Because in prayer, I am reminded, no, I'm not reminded, I am reassured that no matter how much I fall short, that in and through Christ, mercy is always available to me. Through prayer, I am able to join the man on the roadside and shout, son of Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And each time I feel that shame sinking deeper into my bones, I know that I have the authority to shout even louder, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus, in all of his unfailing mercy, receives me 
and loves me into wholeness. A wholeness that enables me, not only for me to receive my sight, but to develop values that allow me to bear witness to the kingdom of God where kingdom order is truly good news to all. Where kingdom order is good news to the poor, comfort to the brokenhearted, release for the captives, and freedom for the prisoners. Will you pray together with me? Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. We acknowledge today that the brokenness in us often contributes to the brokenness we see in our world. God, today I just want to pray for those of us that feel afraid. And God, I pray that you would speak to our scared hearts and remind us that perfect love casts out fear. And as we are made perfect in your love, God, will you give us the courage to join you in what you are seeking to restore? And God, I pray for any of us that are feeling guilty right now, that we would not feel shame, that we might feel guilt because we recognize that our action and our brokenness contributes to something greater, but that we will know that while we we do things and say things and participate in things that you call us who we are as yours. And God, I pray for any of us that have felt marginalized and continue to feel silenced. God, would you please help us to remember in our bodies that we carry value. And so, God, would you restore that voice and restore that sense of value for your name's sake. And lastly, God, I want to pray for our church. We are in the midst of what we're saying is transition. Give us the courage to live into this bending of the status quo, into what we call transition. Help us not to just tolerate the season of disruption, but to value it. Help us to say yes to any forms of disorder, of any forms of false peace. If that means to say no to all those things, I mean. If that, if that means that, God, your kingdom comes, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May you have your will. You have your way in your name.